In the first session, I mentioned that the prophet Isaiah, he highlights two primary failings of the people of Judah, two things that they are guilty of. One, you may remember, is that there's a failure of justice through violence and through greed. It seems that the people of Judah, they had become a nation in which the powerful enriched themselves and took advantage of their wealth and their power and abused the poor. That was one of the major failures that Isaiah talks about. Uh, but as you may recall, there was another. According to Isaiah, the Jewish people were also guilty of idolatry. They had violated the first commandment. They had abandoned God and had turned instead, Isaiah says, to other gods. Now, this is a major theme of chapters 28 to 39 of Isaiah. In, in this session, I'd like to focus our attention on that. What does Isaiah have to teach us about idolatry? Why did the people of Judah turn to other gods? And what form did these other gods take? And most importantly, what does this have to say to us today? We who live in a time and place that seems so very different from those ancient Jews. Uh, before we discuss these chapters of Isaiah, however, I want to begin with a point of clarification about what I mean when I talk about idolatry. Now, after all, if you've read the book of Isaiah before, if you've read this section, you may be puzzled by my claim that idolatry is a major theme in these chapters. Most of the time when people think about the book of Isaiah and the topic of idolatry, they tend to focus on chapter 44, where Isaiah describes the folly, the stupidity of those who make idols out of wood and how those who worship these idols become like them, lifeless, mute, deaf, dumb, that they can't even move around. And when we think about idols, that's often what we think of, those little images made of wood or stone that were supposed to symbolize a deity. Those little images that people worshiped and prayed to and made sacrifices to. That's, that's what Isaiah is talking about in chapter 44. But that's not the only form that idolatry took. No, when I talk about idolatry here, I'm not just talking about the worship of little figurines. I'm talking about anything in which we put our trust. You remember how in that first session, you remember how that quote I used from Martin Luther, how Luther defined a God? A God, he said, is whatever we look to as the source of good in our life. And whatever we run to, whatever we turn to as a refuge, in a time of distress. You see, what Isaiah makes very clear is that the Jewish people, they're guilty of idolatry really on both of these fronts. They often sought out the power and the favor of other gods, of other pagan deities in the, in the Babylonian and Canaanite world. They often sought out these gods as a source of good in their life. They prayed to little statues in the hopes that the weather would be favorable and their crops would prosper and their wives would be fruitful and bear healthy children. These are the concerns of people who live in an ancient agricultural society. And that's what they 
pray to these gods for. But in times of distress, they engaged really in another kind of idolatry. When they felt threatened, when they were afraid, they put their trust in another kind of power. And not so much the power of these little figurines or pagan deities, but the power of kings and of armies. And that's not how things were supposed to be. God, remember, God had said that he would be their defender and strength. That's what he promised to the people of Israel. How does Psalm 121 put it? Do you know this? I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Or, or what about Psalm 46? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Both of these psalms express really the proper response of a heart that turns to God in a time of crisis. But that's not what Isaiah describes when he talks about how the people of Judah are responding to the threats that they face. Do you see this early on in Isaiah chapter 7 in the story of King Ahaz? You can also begin to see this problem arise in Isaiah chapter 30, which begins with a description of, of Judah's lack of faith. What does Isaiah say? Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Uh, what's Isaiah talking about here? Well, it's pretty clear that the complaint has something to do with disloyalty. The Jewish people are devising plans and they're striking alliances that have nothing to do with God. That's what the Lord says through Isaiah. And also this phrase that's translated here for making alliances. In Hebrew, the phrase is actually making molten images because this was part of the process in the ancient Near East for striking a treaty. So somehow Isaiah is connecting these alliances with idolatry. Now, of course, this still doesn't tell us much, but then if you go on in the next verse, it starts to become much more clear. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Okay, so now this is starting to make sense. Instead of consulting God, the people of Judah, they've come up with a plan to make an alliance with the nation of Egypt. Now, precisely what this alliance is, I, Isaiah here doesn't say, but it's pretty clear that it has something to do with military protection, because he says that they're seeking both protection and shelter. And this is obviously no small concern, because if you continue to read on in the chapter, one chapter later, Isaiah brings it up again, this thing with Egypt. Woe to those, he says, who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Now, there's an irony in all of this, of course. Remember, Egypt is the nation that had enslaved the people of Israel. 
Pharaoh was the one who had been their oppressor. And now, now they're abandoning God for his protection, for the protection of Pharaoh. But it's not just Egypt that's the problem. And several chapters later, we see another example of this same form of idolatry, this same pattern arising. And this time, Isaiah gives us a little bit more background to understand what's going on. He tells us that it's the 14th year of the reign of King Hezekiah, which historians have dated to about the year 701 BC. And Judah is under attack. The city of Jerusalem is under attack by this powerful emperor, this powerful empire of Assyria under the command of King Sennacherib. And Sennacherib sends a messenger, uh, a military commander with this title, the Rabshakeh, and he comes to speak to the people of Judah. Now, the speech that this messenger delivers, it's, it's very interesting for the insight that it gives us into what is this temptation toward idolatry? How is it that this appeal is being made? In fact, according to the biblical scholar Ellen Davis, this speech is perhaps the clearest statement of the logic of idolatry and the logic of apostasy and abandoning God that we find in the entire Bible. Only here in the Bible, she says, are readers so fully exposed to the careful reasoning of the enemy on any topic. If the reasoned argument for apostasy receives unique attention, that must be because people of faith in desperate situations will inevitably confront it, and they must be ready. So what does this messenger say? What is this argument that he lays out for the people? Well, basically, it's a mixture of taunting and threatening them. He tells the people that they shouldn't listen to their king, Hezekiah, that they should not trust in these alliances they've made. The Egyptians, he says, the Egyptians can't protect them. Their king, Hezekiah, cannot protect them. And then the messenger goes even further. Even God himself, even the Lord, even Yahweh, he says, cannot and will not protect them from the might of King Sennacherib. Beware, the messenger says. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of the Sumerians? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Now, it's clear what this messenger is trying to do. He's trying to strike fear into their hearts. He wants them to feel afraid. He wants them to feel so helpless, so terrified, that they will seek the mercy and the protection of Sennacherib himself. And it almost works, almost. Except that this time, this time King Hezekiah does not listen. This time the king actually listens to the words of the prophet Isaiah and he trusts in the Lord instead, this time. But this time is an exception. More often than not, in the story of scripture, when the people of God are threatened and when they feel afraid, when they are under distress, they often don't remain faithful. 
More often than not, it seems that they turn to other gods. They turn to other sources of power, other alliances or kings or political strategies, anything that could get them out of their plight. And you could see this happen again and again, all throughout Israel's history. And it's tragic, not only because it shows how prone God's people are to idolatry, but also because it shows that idolatry is often so unintentional. It's not what people are trying to do. In the moment, these political alliances, in the moment they're well-intended, in the moment they seem wise, they seem prudent, even necessary maybe. But however well-intended they might have been, their result is to bring corruption and to bring destruction to God's people. Now, the biblical scholar Stephen Fowle talks about this in a recent book that he wrote on idolatry in scripture and the patterns that we see there. Now this is what he says. The people of Israel did not seek idolatry as an end, though they ended up there. Instead, fear led them to see particular courses of action as prudent and beneficial. Fear inclined them to interpret the political situation in ways that dispose them to idolatrous policies. Uh, there's a lesson in this for us today. As I mentioned in the first session, one of the benefits of reading this book of Isaiah is that it forces us to confront the tragedy and the faithlessness in our own lives, these same patterns that were present back then. And in doing so, in forcing us to confront the failure in our own lives, it prepares us to hear the word of the gospel that Isaiah brings. And it seems that one of the main truths, at least of this portion of the book of Isaiah, is the danger of fear. And that's an important lesson for us because we live like they lived back then. We live during a time of great fear. As the American author and scholar Marilyn Robinson has put it, my thesis is always the same, and it is very simply stated. First, contemporary America is full of fear. And second, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. And she's right. Fear is not a Christian habit of mind. In fact, on the basis of Isaiah, we really could go even further and say that fear, fear is an idolatrous habit of mind. It's what leads to idolatry. But that doesn't mean that we don't often succumb to it just because it's not or it shouldn't be a Christian habit of mind. To the contrary, we're often afraid. We're afraid of sickness, afraid of death, afraid of losing our jobs, afraid of how we'll be able to pay for our kids to go to college. Those are just some of our personal fears. And then of course, we've also got lots of larger corporate and national fears. We're afraid of what might happen to the economy. We're afraid of wars or, or terrorism. We're afraid of the wrong political party getting the wrong kind of power. And of course, it seems like when you look around, it seems like all of those fears are pretty well-founded. There's a reason that we feel afraid. And that's why it's important to remember this lesson from the history of Israel. They also had good reasons to feel afraid. But what did they do with that fear? Now, the psalmist said to seek refuge in God, to lift up your eyes to the hills. 
But that's not usually what happened. Usually, the people began to strategize and they began to look for their own, own solution, even if that meant making an alliance with some foreign king. Now, today, of course, you and I don't face those same fears that ancient Jewish people did, nor are we tempted by their same solutions. But that doesn't mean that we are not prone to the same kind of idolatry. Ours just looks different. We may not seek the protection of an Egyptian pharaoh, but we have our own refuges that we turn to when we are afraid. Refuges like bank accounts or retirement accounts, medical technologies, psychological therapies, political leaders, our own hard work and careful planning and strategizing. And of course, none of these things are bad, but they can often become rival gods when they are what we turn to in times of fear, when they are what gives us comfort in a time of distress. And that's what we learn from Isaiah. When Jerusalem was threatened and the people felt afraid, what did they turn to? Well, strategies, political might. And what about you? What gives you comfort when you feel afraid? What do you fear and what makes you feel safe from that thing you fear? To what do you lift up your eyes? Is it to the Lord or is it to something else? Because whatever it is, that's your God. But the vision given to Isaiah is clear. Any God that is not the one true God, any God that is not the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, will in the end disappoint and fail you. But there is good news. Isaiah doesn't just bring a word of judgment. He also brings a word of comfort and of hope. And that is where we will turn our attention in the next session.